Hello, hello. Good evening. Good evening. Hope you are doing well. I'm just going to share this on my Telegram as well while I get started here. How are you all doing this evening? Um, I hope you all are staying cool. Uh, I just got done with the stream on the left lens on YouTube and wanted to open this up for kind of a discussion. I'm just going to share it really quick though, actually, while I have all you on. So get in the queue as I do a few of those things. Let me see what I can do here. Um, there you go. All right. So I shared it and now I'm here. You got my attention. I was on the left lens earlier talking about the New York Times and how they had this very interesting article um, that I reviewed. It was an article published today. I can actually probably share that in the chat, right? Um, Because I do think it was an important article talking about Biden foreign policy being the same or very similar to uh, Donald Trump's. And it did some interesting things, of course, very problematic things. We went over who Corey Shackey was, at the, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, what the American Enterprise Institute is. And I can certainly review some of that for those of you who weren't in the stream. But if, uh, uh, if you were... Um, it may be more useful to just have a conversation. And if you weren't, you know, this is open to, I'm sending in the chat now the article, the New York Times article for you to read at a later time. But yeah, so this is an open conversation. It's really hot out here in the United, in the United States, at least, uh, especially where I am on the East Coast. I'm in New York, uh, baking. It is hot. Uh, luckily, I do have AC, though, so I'm lucky in that way. But, yeah, people are dying out here. Dozens of people are going to die from this heat wave. The United States is uh, really in decline, I mean, economically, politically. And this happens all the time in extreme weather. The United States is never prepared for this th- for this kind of thing. There's no real public organization or public process Uh, Sometimes you get some heating from cooling centers, I should say, things like that. Uh, But certainly nothing comprehensive in terms of infrastructure uh, that's that's also friendly to the environment that can really mitigate the harmful effects of this. And when you have so many people sleeping out on the streets, that's work that I did. I I mean, I wrote an article in my Substack about working for a community action program, which is a war on poverty program, and how... You know, I was there for, what was that, a year and a half? I've worked in so many different jobs. But I was a, a mobile homeless outreach team case manager. And, yeah, the, the, the fear that we had of all our clients dying in the freezing cold. We had so many clients who refused to go to shelter. Not all for, I mean, some for some I would say not so good reasons sometimes, but also for some reasonable uh, uh, reasons, right? Some some reasons that you'd consider to be 
not necessarily irrational. For example, right, people were afraid of losing their stuff in shelters. Also, there's an arduous process, at least when I was working in the Boston area, an arduous process to get into shelters. You have to go, come to a lottery at a very inconvenient time in the day. If you work, forget about it. I mean, some of these lotteries are 3 p.m. Who works until 3 p.m.? Very few people, right? So if you need to be in a shelter as an individual and are working, you're going to miss that lottery. You're likely not to get a bed. So this whole like limited beds for too many people sleeping on the streets is terrible. And then, of course, there are a lot of rules. There's abuse that happens inside the shelters from both staff because of overwork and secondary trauma and then you just you just have a lot of you have cops around right uh it's not shelters are not a fun thing and so people would people do choose to sleep outside Uh, and it's not necessarily a choice it's but it's a choice within the context of really deplorable conditions that people who can't afford a place to live have to deal with every single day and they pile on to that any mental health addiction. You know, you just have such a level of vulnerability that's just uh, incredibly unfair and just unjust. And so, you know, uh, we have a situation now where, yeah, the heating of the planet and, and these longer winters, longer summers, or shorter winters, longer summers, whatever it is, whatever the in- incredible amount of variation exists, it's just it's just awful what people have to go through and the fear and the, and the level of poverty that people have to admit that so many people have to experience while they're navigating temperatures like this. It's just disgusting. And it's just a, an outgrowth of this parasitic imperialist system that we live under. And while this may not sound like a topic for cold war brew, it certainly is because what does this new cold war do except siphon resources away from actual human needs that we need to address right now. We needed to address days, years, decades, centuries ago. So, yeah, the queue's still open. I don't think I see anyone in the queue. Hello to People's Voice Network. Thank you for joining. Um, You should check out the People's Voice Network. You should check out all their programs. Definitely do that. Uh, They do good work over there. So, Anyone, I don't see anyone in the queue just yet. So I'll keep shooting it with all of you. This is, um, you know, this is more of a laid back show today. It's Sunday, it's hot. I just got done with the stream. I sent you the article on what the stream was about. I can just tell you that basically the main source of that article, the main source of a lot, the New York Times. When you talk about neoconservatism, you talk about neocon propaganda, I mean, the New York Times is kind of un... There's kind of no competition at this point. They used in this article on U.S. foreign policy, on Biden's foreign policy, they used a source, her name is Corey Shackey, from the American Enterprise Institute, and they use her quite often. They also use her in an article on Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and Israel, mainly Saudi Arabia, talking about how it was all about Russia and China. And they used her as well in that. And it seems like she's a frequent guest commentator on New York Times articles. 
even more frequent than some of the others they had. They had a State Department, former State Department lawyer. They had some other, of course, establishment operatives. But Corey Shackey seems special. And so I wanted to look up who she was. She served in the DOD under Bill Clinton and George H.W., the end of George H.W.'s administration, the beginning of Bill Clinton's. Then she served on Bush's National Security Council and during the 2002-2005 period, writing defense strategy during the invasion of Iraq, right? So if you look up the American Enterprise Institute as well, you'll see that the Carlisle Group, which is uh, Dick Cheney is is an honorable trustee, and where the Carlisle Group is uh, the main supporter, right? So the Carlisle Group is a neocon think. Uh, it's a neocon, not think tank. I almost called it a think tank. No, it's a neocon uh, uh, multinational corporate. It's a conglomerate. It's it is basically a hub for of the made, created by the Bush family for Wall Street private equity. It's a private equity firm for private equity for Wall Street for the military industrial complex to come together. The Carlisle Group is very influential. The Bin Laden family used to have investments in it. It's a very influential think tank. I'm probably going to keep on a think tank. Very influential private equity firm that brings together really the capitalist class, the neocon section of the capitalist class. And so this is their source, their principal source. And at the end of the article, she says something incredibly disgusting where she goes, we are better. We are different and better than our competitors or uh, those uh, in the international order who we are competing with. In a sense, she is saying that the United States has the right to have this continuity in foreign policy because the United States is just inherently better. And of course, there's going to be continuity when you are better than your adversaries and your adversaries exist and you're all in it together. It's just so... It's so incredible how these new Cold Warriors, especially the neocons, how they have poured so many, so many resources into their warmongering and how they have such influence in the corporate media. I mean, this is two articles in the last week alone, I believe, uh, maybe a little over a week. Yeah, I believe exactly a week it's been where the New York Times publishes these Sunday articles and Corey Shackey is uh, the principal source of commentary. Uh, She is a dangerous figure. She definitely was an architect of the Iraq War. You don't serve on the National Security Council during that time and not have a big say in how that went down. So that's what the left lens stream was about today. It's very relevant to the new Cold War because part of the reason why there's so much continuity with U.S. foreign policy is because there's a new Cold War afoot and it's brewing, right? That's what the show is all about. Democrats, Republicans, neocons, the establishment, they all agree on it. They all understand that Russia and China is the theater of war at this time. That everything that you do, every move that you make, every escalation, Syria, Iran, doesn't matter. Syria, Iran, the Middle East, U.S. African Command all across the African continent, CENTCOM, right? You saw the CENTCOM head, uh, Kasachan News, did a great 
cut of her lusting over Latin America's resources and talking about how China and Russia have made inroads. Of course they've made inroads. They, they do better deals. But that doesn't matter. The United States isn't about making better deals, isn't about competing economically, isn't about fairness. It won't even allow its so-called partners to have market access. And that's what this article in the New York Times admitted. It won't allow countries in Asia that they want to isolate from China to have any market access to the United States, meaning that it's a one-way street with the United States economically. Oh, sure, you can have economic relations with the United States, but just expect them to be dictated by the United States. Expect the United States to call the shots, expect its financial institutions to tell you what to do, and expect that you will be rejected at any point where you expect a fair deal, where you expect to not be super exploited, to not give an unequal share. Right? One thing that China does that not many people understand in terms of its foreign direct investment, and when China talks about win-win, this is a big part of it. And if you've studied any part of China's economy, let's just say high-speed rail, which I have. I wrote an article in Covert Action magazine about high-speed rail. And I went over a think tank's assessment, a, a corporate U.S. think tank that had a huge screed, a huge report, the uh, ITIF, um, the innovation, the the Information Technology Innovation Foundation. And, uh, you know, it's a bunch of big tech and uh, government officials, former government officials and think tankers and, and these types. And, and they wrote this whole thing about how bad China's high-speed rail is for high-speed rail. And so in my article about that, I talk about how the biggest issue, and this is across the board with China's economy, why the U.S. has issues with it. Well, the big issue that they cited was that China's investment in high-speed rail required, right, because it's all all state-operated, it's all state investment, required any joint venture to have either – uh, equal stake or majority stake for China's company. So uh, CCR, I believe it's called, the uh, China Construction Railway Corporation, CCRC, um, the state-owned corporation that handles all of the building, investment, et cetera, and high-speed rail. And, you know, when you build more than 20,000 miles of high-speed rail in 14 years – you know, you have a heavy influence in that market. Every other country from Japan to uh, France, you know, any other European, the European countries, Germany, they're all falling behind on this. They're all falling behind on high-speed rail. Only China is, is moving forward, is uh, progressing. And the biggest issue they had was that, was that China would not allow this kind of unequal trade, right? Unequal investment. Meaning that they want foreigners to invest. I mean, the only way that China could build high-speed rail was to learn from those who had already been doing it. Japan, you know, uh, France. uh, You can't – you know, that was one of the – that's what China has done throughout its reform reform and opening up. But it's not good enough for the United States. The United States doesn't just want to have economic relations with China. But it wants to dominate its market. It wants full and complete and total access to its investors, its its investor class, 
and its multinational corporations to basically plunder that part of its market. And that's the big issue. Whenever you hear, whenever you hear about patents or unfair trade or anything when it comes to China, that is really what the issue is. There really isn't any other issue. Um, of course, the fact that China's wages are going up and that China's labor costs are higher, that uh, a, a lot of China's investments are, are state-owned and uh, that it does have a pretty firm control over its financial industry because its central bank is not like the Fed. People's Bank of China is not like the Fed. The People's Bank of China actually um, is state-owned and operated fully and has complete control over mon- uh, over the money, over monetary policy. And it's interesting because you've probably seen those ridiculous videos, right, of what was a very uneventful military drill be labeled some kind of crackdown on uprisings at China's banks. None of that was happening. That was just a military drill. And a lot of military drills happen in China. It actually happened in cities because the military in China is considered a, a national body. It's not considered an international force. It's, it's of course, it's all about like defending the country, of course, even from outsiders, <laughs> namely the new cold warriors out there. But a lot of it is actually about you know a body that defends the revolution. That's what the People's Liberation Army has always been. It's about defending the revolution. It was first fighting for the revolution, then defending it. And so a lot of the drills actually happened in the country because where did the majority of the fighting happen? It happened inside of China, right? Japan, the nationalists, and of course, right, the still uh, uh, ever-present threats to China's security. I mean, this is not hyperbole. This is not, you know, whatever, working for the CCP. This is just the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground is that China is militarily encircled and that the U.S. every single day is provoking on the South China Sea and in in Taiwan. It's it's trying to build up a campaign a campaign of aggression. So that's the big issue that the big problem with China. The big problem with China for the United States economically is nothing to do with it, it. It also you know it does have something to do with China's ascendance, of course, being the number one country, uh, number one economy very soon. Yes, that's partial. But if its, char- if its social character and economic character was very similar to the United States, the United States would probably have already <laughs> dismantled it by now, right? Because the, China didn't start as an equal, and it still isn't an equal in many ways to the United States. But it didn't start as that. And so if its social character and its economic uh, system were the same, it's likely that China would have already fallen. So uh, I think it's important to understand these points when understanding the new Cold War and understanding why there's a continuity in foreign policy. There's a continuity in U.S. foreign policy because the objective is is driven. The objectives of U.S. foreign policy are driven by the banks, by the big monopolies, and by the military-industrial complex, and of course all of their political servants. And they are driving a policy that says China is enemy number one, Russia enemy number one A, and that these countries are the preeminent threats to U.S. hegemony. And so right now, terrorism is not a threat to U.S. hegemony. 
it's arguable that terrorism never was because if you know anything about the rise of jihadism and the rise of armed groups uh, that are militantly, fundamentally so-called quote-unquote Islamic is that many of them have roots in the U.S.'s overthrow or the U.S.'s involvement in the uh, Afghanistan so-called civil war with the formation of the Mujahideen to fight the Soviet Union in order to give the Soviet Union its Vietnam. That's what Brzezinski said. And, uh, and that's where it all started. So terrorism was never really a threat. Terrorism was really something that spiraled out of control the U.S. sought to, one, use it as a justification for endless wars, and two, to try to control it, but all of its attempt to control it was actually just a mechanism for more repression and war, and uh, eventually the establishment got tired of it. It was uh, really costly. It still is very costly. And so now they're looking for ventures that will yield more benefit, more benefit, and that's what part of this new Cold War is about. It's about a reorientation, strategic reorientation. So I'm glad that you all love listening to me talk, but I would love to involve you all. Um, if you just came in, this was, I'm, I'm really just waiting for people to get in the queue. Maybe you all are already in the queue and I just can't see. Um, but I love this for this to be a discussion. If you have any comments, any questions. Also, I'm still about seven subscribers away on Patreon from monthly goal. You can subscribe there patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You can also leave questions in the chat. If you have any questions or comments in the chat, I can read those as well. If you're, you know, some people, I get it. Uh, you are not as comfortable maybe, or, you know, there are many reasons why people don't like to talk on things like this, but um, I'm also open to that as well. But I do see Reggie in the queue and I will also review the chat. If there are people in the chat, uh, but let's just get to Reggie first. All right, Reggie, you are now the caller. Hello, hey, how are you doing? I just came in and I caught the tail end of what you were saying, but it, I understand our discussion here is in regards to uh, our uh, never-ending wars. And, uh, you know, my opinion is, uh, you know, war has always been a form of economy. It's an economic Thing, you know, and also it's a kind of a release valve and uh, it's been used for many different things. But recently it appeared to me besides, you know, the constant feeding of the military industrial complex, just like we all hear about and strummed on and on. And it is true. Okay. So there's many people who benefit from war and that's by people, organizations, businesses, industries. And uh, so there's different players that have convergent interests for the war machine. So there's always a reason to look to have a war. And if there isn't reason, you can make one up because it's pretty easy. You know, you can say, well, we're looking up for these poor, you know, these, these people over here that are being suppressed, even though on the other hand, uh, at the same time, we're suppressing somebody else. And it's generally, it goes back to money, money being funneled for different special interest groups. And we have a lot of them. So in the case of uh, or the war that I see that we, go, that we have going on in the Ukraine and the new Cold War, and by the way, the Cold War, of course, is all part of the feeding into the military industrial complex. All it means is that we aren't having direct confrontations. 
we're having indirect confrontations, but people are being killed. So what I see that's, you know, besides the ones that were done in the Middle East, and that was to, to stir things up. And in many cases, that was not, that was, it's done for, that much of that was done for oil, but not for the reasons that a lot of people think. So, so that we can have cheap oil. It's kind of the opposite. It was done to keep the price of oil up. Uh, so going back to the money thing, we need special interests benefit from what's going on. So right now, we, the United States is actually producing more petroleum than we really need and pushing the price, I mean, more than we use, more than our requirements. And so that pushing the price uh, of oil up, you know, the price goes up and it's held by our own producers. They're saying, well, look, we could sell it. We're on a world market and the price is up. So the fact that it's like twice as much, you guys got to pay that much here or we could sell it over there. And so that, you know, that's one group that's benefiting from besides the military industrial complex. Also, if you increase the cross of everything, you know, part of the inflation is real and part of it's artificial. So if you increase the cost of everything and there's a percentage, especially if you can increase the cost of things while you, it's not really costing you anymore, that's just a huge gain in the profit margin. And you can hide that in the turmoil. And so there, there's another group, a lot of the uh, merchants, uh, the people that are buying and selling. In some cases, you know, we have different types of merchants. We have people who actually produce things and other people who make their money by buying, holding, and selling, you know, essentially is just a, I'd call it a value added, except there's no value being added. It's just being skimmed. So you got that group that's making money. Uh, the government, you know, and the uh, many of the people in the government, some parts of the government get more power, but it, our politicians tend to get more, more, uh, well, first of all, it makes it look like they're doing something, even though in many cases they're not. They also, there's also a lot of campaign donations that are related for, you know, for supporting the correct side of the turmoil. And the correct side of the turmoil tends to be the ones that puts the most in somebody's pockets because most people aren't doing it out of altruism. They aren't doing it because they consider it to be a benefit. But they're yeah, other than their own bank accounts, but then and then of course there are the true believers that think they're doing good. It's the easiest thing you can. Easiest thing is to do things like that when you think you're doing good, because then you have, don't feel anything bad about your conscience. Right. So what's going on right now in the Ukraine, or at least this is how I see it. There's a lot of money being made because Ukraine has a you know the, a large part of the production of grains and a number of other resources. It's been the playing field of, of trying to push the economic uh, controls and, and interactions, not interactions, but a lot of the, uh, the changing economy, it has to do with who's getting money on the deals. And so in most cases right now, war, the wars are being performed for the benefit of one group or the other group financially. It's being done financially. You know, we know who's paying for the war in you know, the Ukraine. It's mostly us as far as the cost of everything. By us, I mean the, the American working class because uh, the people that are in the industry, are, are that's where the money's being moved around. And then the, the Ukrainians themselves who are dying 
And in some case, there's, you know, there's a lot of deals going on over there. And uh, I know I'm getting off track, but I think the main focus of what I, my whole discussion is, is war that we've been, as we've been performing it for quite a while, has been for shifting of money for special interests. And in many cases, the wars that we're fighting here in the United States, we might as well be a, you know, if we were honest about it, we'd be a mercenary force. That if you needed the U.S. troops to do something or the U.S. weapons to do something, you'd straight out buy it. So in many cases, they try to convince the, well, they actually do. They put forth the, the propaganda that we're going out there to, you know, make us free from terrorism. In many cases, this is the terrorism that we use for stirring up the war. Going back to what you said earlier about the, the Mujahideen for, you know, you know, put it to the Soviets when they invaded. And it's, you know, it's been a long, profitable path for certain people. Yeah. And the rest of us yes. end up paying for it, either in blood or money or combination of both. And we're told totally. that we just have to do it because it's the right thing to be done. Yeah. And if you keep on telling people something enough and they'll start believing. And the worst thing that's happening right now is the almost total lockdown of censorship. If we're supposed to be a free society where we have freedom of speech and freedom of information, how come we can't get any information from the Russian media? Yeah, we know there's going to be propaganda because that's how it is. But why can't we not get any of it? Yeah. We can't get nothing. Yeah. We yeah. only get one side. Well, thanks, Reggie, for your yeah. for your comments. I think uh, that's a definitely a good way to, to at least conclude your initial comments. Um, I definitely, yeah. I mean, a lot of the things that you um, have said are are definitely true. I, I mean, on that last point, though, that's a that's a huge. I think that's a huge, hugely important point because. I think the propaganda, the war propaganda, uh, the Cold War propaganda has made it so, and, and it's not just Cold War propaganda. This is just from everything you've described. And then, of course, the propaganda apparatus around it has for so long uh, made it so that w- that this kind of censorship and surveillance is normalized now. That I've I speak to people. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a part time therapist in terms of uh, what I do outside of my media work, and yeah, I've I've had clients, you know, say like I don't care about surveillance, you know, I don't care if the FBI, CIA, and NSA have thing, you know, have records on me, spying on me. I'm not I have nothing to hide, is what they say. But that kind of normalization of surveillance has, I think, only been built upon as the U.S. transitions to uh, this so-called new strategy, really just piling on uh, or, or, or rendering secondary other strategies. But it's a new theater of war making when it comes to Russia and China. Yes, has everything to do with all that you said, Reggie, all that you said was so true. And then there's this propaganda apparatus for that last point where not only is it, a, a policy now by these big tech corporations and the government and the and Washington to suppress information coming out of Russia, coming out of China, and people that they consider affiliated uh, with um, affiliated with these countries, right, or affiliated with with uh, media coming from these countries. 
not only is that happening, but then you also have uh, it normalized where people, they just are taught over and over and over again that, oh, yeah, it's all just propaganda. Of course, we we don't want to see that kind of information, right? So it's kind of building upon this normalization of censorship that the, the, the state, the U.S. government, uh, its allies, that this national security state that's built up has the right to dictate what you read, watch, the information that you pursue. You know, it's like before the era of big tech, if the state was burning books and uh, uh, disallowing libraries and other so- <laughs> other uh, uh, sources of information to uh, hold certain texts. Right, which has happened in history, and it's happening now in this way because of the, the different level of development we are under. But it's the same kind of thing. It's telling you that you cannot hear the Chinese side, you cannot hear the Russian side, which we desperately need. I mean, I've contributed for both. I've contributed for Chinese media more so than Russian, but I have also contributed to Smut. I go on Sputnik shows when I'm asked. I've been on RT shows when I'm asked. You know, or, you know, uh, it's not something I've ever found to be a problem personally in my experience. Global Times will reach out to me, say, hey, do you want to answer these interview questions? Hey, do you want to write a piece about this? CGTN does the same thing. And it's never been a problem. You know, it's never been a problem for me where I'm like, oh, I'm being censored. But, you know, somehow I can get locked out of Twitter for just going over the the uh, propaganda we've been fed about Tiananmen Square. <laughs> like I can be censored on Twitter for that, locked out of Twitter for a week on my last uh, strike, so to speak, in that regard. So uh, this censorship is being normalized and it is all part, it's all part of this propaganda apparatus that surrounds the the warmongering that surrounds the the what the national security state what uh US empire is seeking to do and proactively doing all around the world that's what it's doing so i don't see anyone else in the queue um i'll probably stay on for another 10 to 15 more minutes um but i i can let reggie Answer, Reggie. If you keep your uh, responses to about two minutes tops, I definitely would uh, will will let you um, respond if you have anything else. I don't know if there's any questions in the chat. Let me just check real quick before I let you on, Reggie. No, 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 no questions in the chat. So, uh, Reggie, I oh oh yeah, there you are. Okay, Reggie, uh, you can respond if you have any uh, follow up. Maybe Reggie is not here. Okay, I'm trying oh, to... sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to figure out how to get that mute. Okay, I'll try uh, to keep them shorter. I, I kind of blasted, you know, the whole, the large portion of my entire, well, almost my entire view of the... You did it concisely profit. for an entire view, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I really uh, am interested in the last point that you honed in on, which is the censorship and the censorship and the propaganda. You know, it's not that we're not being allowed propagandists, that we're only being allowed the propaganda of the people who are controlling the money and the narrative. Now, this is takes the assumption, either one or two, they're either just trying to control it, and they don't want anybody to look behind the curtain, which is my feeling, or the other one, they consider us all too stupid to be able to tell if we're being told a story 
or not. Oh, I've been around a long time. And when you're young, you tend to believe a lot of stuff, especially if somebody's telling you something that you want to hear, that's the easiest thing to believe. The easiest lie in the world to believe is if you want to believe it. And in many cases, uh, probably over half the population, I think just recently with our last president, you know, they, they, they believe anything. Even if he changes his mind, says the opposite thing the next day, and then said, I never said it, they'll go along with it. So that's one problem. Okay, the other problem is that if you never get the different point of view and you never have the opportunity to be able to see it, uh, the people who are actually interested in whether it's true or not, and in an early, once I found out I was really wrong about something at a, at a young age, by young age, I was in my early 20s, that's when I started questioning almost everything I was told. And it, it was a good thing for me when I realized how wrong I'd been for a number of years because I just believed what people told me, and it seemed like it was right. I remember when I was a kid in high school, and I thought, you know, heard about the Crusaders, which came from our European ancestry, and what a great job, you know, we're out there trying to do the right thing. And then you find out later, no, it's nothing but murdering and pillaging. And, you know, if anything, the Crusaders were by far the worst. I mean, they, they behaved in a much worse fashion than the people trying to keep them from crusading. So at one of the things, uh, going back to it, if you can never look into what might be, might or might not be, understand it could be propaganda, but if you can never look or hear somebody else's story, you cannot truly judge what you're doing, that you're right or wrong. And, and that does put, you know, that makes it easy on many people because they don't want to know. They just want to assume they're doing right. Just tell me what to do. But in many of us that where we want to look at, uh, am I doing the right thing? It, you have to be able to question and hear as much information as you can. And that's our problem. Is there, they've clamped on it. We, they can hear more things over in Russia about our point of view than we can hear about theirs. And I don't think that they're all right or wrong, but I can pretty sure that what, much of what we're being told is not right, that we're being lied to about a lot of things. Okay, and so we need to right. we need to combat this. Yeah, the, we need to challenge the fact we're either a you challenge it on the point that they can't, you know, they can't deny saying, hey, you know, we got the right to know. This is supposed to be free speech. We're smart enough to be able to determine whether which lie is true or not. So if we can never hear that yeah. story, then we can't make any judgment. And the only way to stop that is by stopping it with our money. Thank you, Reggie. Thank you. I'm, allow our money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I do have a couple of callers in the queue. Okay. I definitely want to give them some time, but I think that's a good uh, place to uh, uh, to to end your comments. But I really do appreciate them. I'm going to let Rudy in. Um, and I saw someone else there uh, and now no longer here. But I uh, hope you do come back. Uh, but Rudy, you can be the next caller. Um, and then I think I see a question in the chat. If the person who I will not call out, because I do not like to do that. Uh, um, I understand you all are here voluntarily. So Rudy, I'm going to let you in um, for your question and or comment. Uh, please do try to keep this one to two minutes if possible, just because... Uh, um, I, I think we have about 10 more minutes left for me before I have to go. And uh, and then there's one question in, I believe, the chat. So, Rudy, hello. 
Hey, Danny, how you doing? Good. Good to hear from you. Hey, man. So um, I was just curious this week about the chronicles of the SS John Lewis. I was wondering, do you know what the SS John Lewis is doing out there? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I have not been been following that, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's just another another one of these uh, naval ships named after, uh, of course, <laughs> our uh, civil rights hero turned warmonger, uh, John Lewis. But but yeah, I don't know. Did you have any other comments about it though? Um, no, just I've just been curious because I heard about it. I actually read about that from the Black Agenda report. Mm-hmm. Um, they never really talk about. I mean the. Uh, CNN and, and the likes don't really talk about it. And I was just curious what it does around the world. And also I was curious who else has been named after a warship. Mm. Interesting. Not something I generally follow. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. I, I would have to look that up because I these are the kind of th- kinds of details that I don't generally keep stock of. You know, it, what's so interesting about this question is that, like, you know, someone like Roxanne Dunbar-Tease talks a lot, a lot about how, you know, um, like military, like helicopters, uh, air force, like they will be named after like indigenous tribes, you know, almost kind of like this uh, rite of passage as as colonizers. But I'm not so familiar with the navy, like what these naval ships are named after. I know the UK oftentimes names them after their former queens. Um, so, uh, but yeah, no. What what the John Lewis is? I have no idea what the John Lewis is doing. I've never heard it in the context of you know going out to the South China Sea. Uh, that would probably be a huge blemish for John Lewis if that were the case. Um, I don't know, but. It, it could very well be just like sitting on some <laughs> some dock collecting dust, which was what a lot of U.S. U.S. ships do. They just kind of sit and pollute. Um, they don't usually get uh, deployed anywhere. So, um, but yeah, uh, uh, good comment. Do you have anything else before I before I let you go? Um, no, uh, that's it, man. Appreciate right. what you do and. Somebody's definitely gonna gotta chronicle the SS John Lewis. Hey, yeah, no. Now that you brought it up, I'm very, very curious about where they've actually put that thing um, and what they put it if they put it to use at all, um, or if it's some like glorified trophy. So uh, yeah, I saw one other person who was in the chat. They have not re-entered, or I mean, in the queue, they have not re-entered. I will not harass them about it but I was curious. Maybe it was a mistake. Um, okay, so in my last few minutes, though, I do want to check. There was someone in the chat. I think it was Cut the Pentagon. Had, yes, it was Cut the Pentagon. Said, Danny, what will it take to break the propaganda? Normal people feeling the hurt. <sighs> oh, I see Fahim in the chat. So I'll just answer this quickly. I mean, in the queue. So Fahim, uh, just give me a minute. I will just answer this quickly. <sighs> To break the propaganda, I mean, normal, I mean, ordinary people are feeling hurt. They are hurt right now. This is the problem with hegemony, is that hegemony means that the ideas of the dominant class will be the dominant ideas. 
which means that we are starting from the position of fighting uh, uh, those uh, dominant ideas. And what it will take to break them, for there to be kind of a sea change, will have to be one in part done by our efforts to organize collectively, to build an apparatus, to build our own kind of grassroots media apparatus that can challenge it, that's connected to a movement. I think that's really important and a peace movement and uh, a class struggle oriented movement. I think that's one. And then two, you know, I I really think that, um, I really think that we will need not only for people to be hurting, but also for this system to, and this is an accelerationist argument, but it has to be at the point where it can no longer govern. And I think that will have to be, again, in part due to the terminal contradictions of this system and the way people rise up against it. I don't think people really uh, cut through any kind of propaganda unless their life is 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 really changed, right? And right now, people's lives are kind of stuck in this really miserable cycle of like uh, endless austerity, where they're and uh, precarity, where you know finding and seeking out alternative sources of information is like another hour of work for a lot of people, you know. So they'll, if they're even interested at all in the United States, I'm talking about at least they're going to get it from the misinformers, from the fake news peddlers over in the corporate media. But Fahim, I um, I will let you in and I see uh, the question um, in the chat. So I'm going to take these last two and then I'm going to head out. So Fahim and then the question in the chat. Um, Fahim, you're the next caller. Hello. Hey, Danny. Uh, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming along again. Welcome, welcome. Well, uh, cut the Pentagon is me, so I was asking the oh. question. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, by the way, uh, with regards, a couple of uh, things. When you mentioned about uh, the before the Afghan Mujahideen was the World Muslim League that was uh, uh, f- uh, formed in uh, Morocco, and uh, that's where a lot of pamphlets were passed out to former, uh, now former Soviet Union uh, uh, countries uh, and all to uh, basically spread the radicalism uh, and all. And Vijay Prashad uh, wrote a, uh, there's a PDF document you can uh, Google and uh, read. So that was a really uh, good uh, document that gives a uh, historical uh, overview. It's not 100 pages, it's like 10, 11 pages. Uh, So it's not uh, too long. Um, now, the question that I have uh, for uh, you, Danny, is psychologically speaking, how much of the spread of this nationalistic propaganda also relies on people wanting to belong uh, to a group? Uh, I call it like the herd uh, mentality. And uh, finally, I have one quick uh, point with regards to uh, U.S. ships. Believe it or not, just Google it. There, there uh, is a ship, uh, USNS City of Bismarck. Initially, it was named USNS Bismarck. And when I first heard that, I'm, I was like, okay, are we going to have the 
the Nisenau and the Scharnhorst and Prince Eugen, uh, also part of the U.S. Navy, or uh, what? Because uh, Bismarck, as you know, uh, was a uh, the uh, pride of the uh, Kriegsmarine uh, during uh, uh, the Third Reich. Oh, sorry, I was muted. Wow. Fahim, uh, that's really interesting. I feel like there's probably a lot of those nuggets in uh, in the names of these ships. So now I feel like I have a research project. Thanks, Fahim, for that information, though, and for the sharing the resource as well. Appreciate it. Appreciate you coming back. Uh, thanks for coming again. I'm going to answer the last comment in the chat, though. Um, uh, oh, oh, my, you, you, know, you had a question for me. I almost didn't answer the question. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, the question is about wanting to be part of our group. I do think that's part of it psychologically. I really like that you come with these psychological questions. I think it's a combination of things. My my opinion is that one, I think every I think human beings want are collective creatures and um you know, honestly have for millennia needed to work together in order to survive. And I think that's still the case. I think I, I think that's still the case. And so, yes, there is some like identification, one part of a group. But I think when it comes to imperialism and the stage of this kind of like U.S. Uh, project, uh, colonial imperialist project, I think that it's the contradiction between being part of a so-called society that's so exceptional or supposed to be so exceptional, right, so mythologized, while also having to deal with these just intractable problems and see this decline happen in real time, I think has has really challenged this idea of wanting to be part of a this group, right? And and I think that's why there is still so much mistrust in the mainstream media. It's not that there's some kind of like complete buy-in from the population. It's just that those who are mobilized by it have both political power, political influence, and uh, those who mistrust don't really have any power at all. And, and, I, and, and they don't really have the alternative ideas around foreign policy, especially, right? This has been a problem. The peace movement is at a low point. There's not a lot of understanding about global politics. There's not, I mean, it's not like we have huge anti-imperialist contingencies out here in the U.S. I mean, that's just not the case. So, so you have these gaps. And so I think, yeah, part of it is wanting to be part of a group. But, but I also think that there is a gr- this growing mistrust is about a lot more. Uh, and I think some of the mistrust is, is uh, you could say, psychological in nature. It's, it's about being slighted by the very force that said it was taking care of you, right? I think there is this imperialist, um, you know, some people call white privilege, but there is this like imperialist privilege, this kind of like entitlement that a lot of people in the United States, I won't say all, but a lot of people in the United States had come to expect, right? If, If they couldn't get the jobs that they wanted, make the money that they wanted, they can always expect to have it work, have it better, than what people were experiencing in Iraq and Afghanistan or wherever. That's not so much the case anymore. Uh, the, the, the tide of development and progress has moved to the east, has moved to uh, those who historically have experienced the worst uh, of the poverty and misery of imperialism. They are progressing now, led by China, in part Russia, in, 
uh, Iran, you know, on and on and on. Uh, countries that have historically uh, been some of the poorest in the world now are are not. And, and the U.S. is going the opposite direction. And so I think that, you know, that is also making it so psychologically that that's a little bit confusing without alternative ideas you can get caught up into wanting to hold on to what you thought you always deserved right which is to be number one and to uh, even if you have to tolerate some uh, bad things here in the united states that at least you would reap the benefits of what the empire did and that's kind of like an unspoken i would say an unconscious entitlement unconscious it it's an entitlement that lives in the unconscious. Um, so thanks, Fahim, for that. There's a question in the chat, and, and so I'm going to read it. Curious about how it is. This is from Sawson. Curious how it is that educated folks who I'm surrounded by, lucky you, are so damn gullible with the information they get from respectable news sources. The less lettered, uh, the less lettered are more suspicious, but not necessarily more informed, if you know what I mean, regarding casualties, <laughs> uh, causalities, I mean, I said casualties. Both of my statements are generalizations, but I think true as a rule. So, I mean, this is, I mean, I, you know, yes, those are generalizations, but I think, you know, it's funny. I, <laughs> I struggle with um, academia, uh, because on the one hand, I'm wholly critical of it. I know that uh, it has been completely taken and shaped by capital at this point and the state, really. Now, that's been a long process. I mean, a lot of these universities, especially the big ones, the big Ivies, for example, you know, that they were built off the backs of slavery and colonialism and always served the elite. And it took a valiant struggle by people to make those institutions even just a bit more equitable. But now since the neoliberal period, they have become basically centers of capital and misinformation for capital and for imperialism. And so it just happens that you're, (laughs) even when you're just talking about uh, educated folks, people with letters by their names, maybe maybe masters, maybe maybe doctorates, they are being fed this drivel. Academic elite drivel is kind of worse than even just reading the dumbed down words you read in the New York Times. Right? I was talking about this with Amira Bahia, um, the Palestinian American journalist I had on my show a week ago or so. And we were reading this article in the New York Times about Saudi Arabia and the visit that Biden had and being about Russia and China. And I was like, this is like a dumbed down kind of just message from the national security state about what the agenda is. And that's more readable (laughs) than the drivel you get come pouring out of academic journals. And so the struggle I have with academia is that a lot of people become politicized in academia, even working class people, students, they do. I mean, I happen to be one of them. I went to college. I mean, I have a, I have a master's in social work, but um, I became politicized during my college years. I wouldn't say it was because of the school. I would say it was, uh, or because of what I was learning in school, I would say it was because of the school environment um, and all of the frustrations with it. But surely I think 
in the United States, it does not correlate that the more educated you are in terms of higher education, that the more politically aware you are or the more politically um, conscious you are. No, that's not true because you're still not getting the information you need. Everything you do in in all of the education system, even at the higher education system, is all about class reproduction. So it's all about how do you fit in to this class system, this imperialist system, and you become, you know, ingratiated in, in that structure. And so the higher up you get, maybe you'll be in a more elite position. Sure. Not not necessarily an elite, not necessarily a ruler, but you will become in a, a more comfortable position and maybe a place where you have some influence over the knowledge base of the empire, but you're, you're usually not going to be challenging it. There are a few. There are exceptions to this. Exceptions to this. It's not like all academics or all professors or all PhDs are kind of rambling idiots. And we know from the uh, the colonized world that a lot of intellectuals, from Vladimir Lenin to Kwame Nkrumah, right, the, the, the Franz Fanon. I mean, these folks were intellectuals. They were professionals, but they were also revolutionaries. But in the United States, that this system works in a very rigid and harsh way so it's very hard to break through that in this time where a lot of the movements that came from the outside and influenced inside of the university have dissipated and so we have to rebuild that before we can expect students or former professionals who come out of the high, the highly educated world in the united states for them to have any positive role and uh, it has to be, they have to be forced to make a decision. That happens at an individual level right now, but it's not happening at a collective level. So for me, it was at an individual level. I grew up with working class people. I grew up with poor people. I considered myself one of them. And I went to a high, uh, a very highbrow elite uh, undergraduate school, uh, college. And immediately it was just having extreme, what I guess you could call it culture shock, or you could just call it system shock. But I was just absolutely dreading. I dreaded it. I hated it. And um, it forced me to make a decision. Like, who was I? Was I this or was I something else? And, and I chose something else. I chose to go on a path of figuring out. And then there were experiences, right? Uh, witnessing other people's oppression, witnessing um, how that affected me and, and, and moving forward. So I think people who are educated, right. People who maybe, right. We can't say all working class people are not educated. That's what the media does. They say, working class, you're, you're working class. If you don't have a college education, that's not the case. Let's not get it twisted. But yeah, those folks who all do have been able to move up, whether they come from the working class or whether they were always petty bourgeois in the middle class or in the rural, you know, wherever they are, uh, they'll have to be forced to make a decision. And uh, some of the material conditions that exist, a lot of it can produce that now. I think that there is kind of a politicizing effect that's happening now, but it's not enough around this new Cold War. A lot of people will continue to buy in to uh, I was talking about in my stream look I'm I support the Palestinian solidarity movement I support Palestine I am full on free Palestine self-determination for Palestine and Palestinian people now with the Palestine solidarity movement 
I am very much critical of the fact that a lot of them, and a lot of them are students in the colleges, I have to say that uh, they can be openly, and I think there's a lot of unfortunate influence from former ISO organizations, you know, the former ISO and other kinds of organizations like that, which peddle this uh, pro-State Department narrative on issues like the new Cold War. I have to say that I've not been impressed by uh, certain sections of the Palestine Solidarity Movement where I am in New York and other places on the East Coast, Massachusetts, Boston area where I used to live. And I know this is a national problem because I've been to I've been to other places and they've told me the same thing. You know, soft peddling propaganda about Syria, China, Russia, right? This just like very intense, um, yeah, this very intense brainwashing and loyalty to certain segments of the imperialist agenda while claiming to stand for Palestine. I don't think you can stand for Palestine and say, oh, well, I hope, you know, I'm anti-Assad or whatever, right? You can't do it. It doesn't work like that. Palestine is not a single issue. It's connected. It's connected to so much more. Um, and the fate of Palestinian people will be connected to all of our fates, will be connected to the fate of all people oppressed uh, by imperialism, no matter where they are. And that's just the facts. You can't, you, you know, Syria and Palestine have a deep relationship that spans back decades. And so to claim that you have some sort of higher ground on that, you know, that's a problem to me. And I think that's where this uh, arrogance, maybe this entitlement that comes from being lettered or maybe potentially lettered comes from, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's my opinion about this question. It's a very good question because I, I can't lie. I'm lettered. I got a master's degree. I, uh, I escaped. I mean, I have some debt. Uh, I do have significant debt from undergrad. I escaped grad debt miraculously by finding a one-year program at a CUNY school um, and using basically all my savings from like a decade of work. But uh, um, but yeah, I identify with this because <laughs> I can tell you that I, I know so many people who've been to schools, who've gotten higher degrees than me, have gone to schools, uh, uh, Ivy leagues. I know these folks and I can tell, uh, yeah, just, I feel, I feel it. They don't understand. Uh, and it's all of it is because they just, they don't have the information and they've latched on to uh, misinformation because they think it will benefit them. And so people who have been able to go through the education system at that level can be taught to believe that they have a stake in this. I don't believe they do. I believe most don't, but they can be taught. And that's a big challenge. It's a big challenge in our class, uh, in our class struggle, you know, how we make these issues a class struggle. So that was a very good question. I see you have some responses. So I'll read those actually. Um, so you said, don't even get me started in academia. I saw that one. I think that complexity is not opposite of revolutionary commitment and action, but it's often taught and read that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why I use the term lettered because I think education is not necessarily linked to degrees and degrees can produce stupidity for sure. 
I'm part Palestinian and research and publish on Palestine. There's a lot of corruption and penetration of the movements in the U.S. Arab Americans and Muslims are highly surveillanced, surveilled, and many have sold out. Ooh, can we do a show together? <laughs> I would love to hear more about this. There are also two prob- other problems. Some of these governments are historically repressive and neoliberal, Assad, but also Islamic Republic. Second, there's an undercurrent of sectarianism, I believe, that is encouraged by the most reactionary governments. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I don't know if I would agree on Assad being uh, neoliberal. Uh, certainly repressive in certain aspects of history over the course of Syria's history, yes. Uh, I think... I don't want to say complex because I think your point about complexity is taken, but I think um, there is some nuance to that repression based on Syria's situation historically and what, for example, Syria had to deal with in certain parts of its history toward independence and post-independence, especially with the Muslim Brotherhood, which has been considered one of the victims of um repression, you know, of this repression. Oftentimes the U.S. will talk about that. I'd love to hear more if you had any more information about the uh, anything else, but that's usually how I have heard about it, is that the Muslim brother who was brutally suppressed, and it was in Syria for a while. But I would love, yeah, totally. Um, great comments. Um, here, I uh, hear you about the anxious about the public thing. Yes, I've heard about the neoliberal policy after his dad died in 2000. Yes, I've heard about that. Heard about some of the cutbacks. I've also heard, of, you know, I've heard about the swinging back around and you know, I think, uh, yeah, politics very complex in the region. I hate, I use that term again, but they're very nuanced in the region. I feel like because of the political situation. Not to say that you know any of that should be justified, but, but certainly there was uh, a lot of pressure um, coming down from uh, uh, the regional situation and how it relates to the overall world economy. And, and I think. Um, yeah, no, uh, I get the anxiety about the public thing. I, I actually don't like it either. <laughs> I don't really like speaking public, guys. I don't like doing it. Uh, I understand if any of you all are nervous to call in. Don't get me wrong. But anyway, thanks, uh, Sasa, and I really appreciate your uh, contributions. Um, question, it was good. And yeah, I'm down to do that in the chat for anyone else. Uh, I don't like speaking in public, never have. I, it used to make me... I used to, so I used to play basketball. I'm going to end on this because I actually do have to meet up with someone in 45 minutes or so and eat dinner before that. Uh, but I'll tell you a story about me. You know, I like, to, I like people to know who I am now. So I used to play basketball and I used to believe myself, I mean, I had NBA dreams. I mean, anyone who thought of themselves as anything playing basketball, usually, I'm not going to say everybody. But usually are like, oh, I want to play college. I want to play NBA. And I thought, I thought I could do that. And I think I just kind of uh, thought myself into thinking it, if that makes sense. Like wanted it that bad. So I thought that myself as being able to do that. Probably never really was going to be able to do that. Um, but I thought I would, I, I still think, I mean, I don't play very much anymore. But even to this day, I'm like, oh yeah, I was pretty good. Uh, but I do suffer from anxiety. I'm sure many of you do too. If you live in the United States of America, I don't know how you can grow up in the society without having a little bit of that. And it affected my play. It affected my play. 
well, my coach let me know about it too. Cause I had, you know, I had all this potential. I could shoot the lights out. They said I had all this potential, but man, when I had to go out in public, I played for a pretty good school in high school. When I had to, you know, I worked so hard at it. You know, I worked hours Man, you don't, you don't want to know what the, 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 what I used to do. Right. And I kind of take, I, I've kind of taken my work ethic into the work that I do in media, you know, and, and, and I did it with activism always burns out, but with media, I can manage it a bit more. You know, I can, I can, um, balance a bit more. So I don't, you know, find myself getting burnt out as much, but I do have my moments. I do have my moments. But basketball was like, man, I was a young kid. I would, you know, I would look up all these training regiments, playing all these leagues. I remember there was one point in my life, probably for consecutive summers, I think it was three summers in a row, at least, where I would, consider the off season, where I would wake up at 5 a.m., work out for an hour, usually on skills or something, shooting, ball handling, come back, eat breakfast, fall asleep again, wake up, go to the Y, work out, uh, usually on weights or something like that, or some kind of other kind of training, and then go home, try to rest again, and then try to play some pickup in the evening. And that, that that shit was hard on my body. I remember... I was like a sophomore in high school and I was having back issues because I was going that hard. But the anxiety just, um, you know, to this day, I, I look back at that. And I'm like, damn, I remember those feelings. I remember just feeling just absolute. I mean, everyone gets nervous, right? Most people get nervous before games. But I remember it was a crippling. Like I would be like my body was just different, you know, just it was all physiological, to go along with the mental, my coach let me know about it. So look, when it comes to uh, public stuff, that's never been easy for me. I mean, politics, uh, activism, getting into the struggle bigger than myself, the stakes changing from like performance as an individual to performance to like serving people. It's a different feel. So, you know, while I do have anxiety about I think most activists and people who are in this movement have this. Um, Everyone I've met, everyone I've met who's been, who's in this struggle has extreme insecurities, which is just anxiety. Let's just call it what it is about how much they're doing. Are they doing it good enough? Are they making enough of a contribution? That is just a common feeling especially for for us leftists, socialists, communists, whatever. Very common, especially in a moment of retreat. Extremely common. I try to be gentle with it and compassionate to it because at this point, I mean, I had moments all throughout my 20s where sometimes that shit would burn me out so bad that I'd be like, man, am I, am I like, I never said, oh, I'm going to give this up. Never did I do that. But I was like, oh, what is my role here? Like, what am I doing? Right? Like you have those moments. And, and so I think, you know, yeah, definitely with this call in and I'm like, Hey, I'm in the queue. Don't feel pressure. You can put the question in the chat. Maybe I'll do that more. Sometimes, uh, I, <laughs> I remember being on Brianna Joy Gray's program and she was on the chat all the time and she has so, you has so many more viewers than I do. And I'm like, you know, I was on her program 
once. Remember, she was looking at the chat. It kind of distracted her, but I would be distracted too if I had that many people um, in the chat. But no, I think we can manage it where if you do a question, just put question marks, maybe multiple question marks uh, so I can skip over the comments. And that can be one way to call in. But yeah. Um, yeah, and Sasson says, I think uh, women are evaluated differently on visual media. <sighs> no doubt. No doubt. Women, gender, queer, trans people, like, no doubt. Oh, man, I remember, I, might, I consider myself a cis, cis male. Um, but, you know, nothing can be assumed uh, in this day and age, I hope. Although there's a lot of vitriol about this kind of stuff that I'm like, really? Really gotta, uh, you really gotta be that... <laughs> Uh, I don't even know what to say, like Americana of you. Um, there's a lot of people on the left like that these days. But I remember when I was joining this communist party and I didn't make it that long. I, I didn't make it out of candidacy. And I remember the feeling of being assumed that I was like, because because they looked at me and you're this cis, they call me a cis white male. I was like, no, 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 no. You never do that to me. Never. Because I grew up as a as an Asian American male, perceived Chinese. I'm Vietnamese, probably got some Chinese in me, but I'm Vietnamese and and uh, you know, so called Hapa child, you know, mixed. So you know, in my adulthood, I guess people have their assumptions. But you know, if you're an Asian American male, you do grow up with a different perspective on gender. Not to say you are not, um, you know politically and, and socially a man, but you also have some, there's some nuances there because of racism and the way that's sexualized and gender and, you know, rendered significant based on gender. And so when that person did, this was a trans person when they did that, I mean, they had a lot of issues. They had a lot of anger issues, a lot of toxicity known to be an abuser. Um, and I remember being yelled at for like 20 minutes straight on the phone uh, by them when when they were mad that I criticized the Black Lives Matter network. And I remember being called a cis white male. And after that, I was like, fuck this. I'm done with this shit. <laughs> I was like, that's it. Mm-mm. This is not politics. This is not how we should be doing things. This is not how communist parties should be behaving. Um, certainly no one should be behaving like this. And when I had that experience, I was like, look, I'm not even, I'm not even on the side of those, especially these days, very uh, common who are like, oh, you're just some like normie, um, you know, these days with the rise of Petersons and Shapiro's and, you know, other Chappelle now getting on this bandwagon, right? Making gender so hard to talk about as if we can't, shouldn't be talking about it. Uh, we probably should be in a class struggle. Angles, like read some angles. Um, but no, nah, I wasn't, you know, I was like, damn, I'm trying to be subordinate to the party. Like I was trying so hard. I was like, hey, you know, I want a discipline. I want, um, you know, I want to be part of a movement. I want to be part of a, a vanguard party. And unfortunately, a lot of times what happens is that you run into these contradictions and sometimes they can take you 
away from what you originally thought you were going to do. So anyway, all of that is to say is that uh, you got a couple of stories out of me today. Um, and Big Teal said, did they have a principal critique of Black Lives Matter uh, and how they treated local chapters? I think they talked about the network now called uh, Global Foundation. Uh, no, they did not. Not at that time and not, not now either. Uh, no, both, most socialist groups are just definitely scared of that. Communist parties. So s- scared of having a critique of the ways in which movements can be co-opted uh, uh, and how individuals within these, within these organizations can become, you know, agents of neoliberalism and, and, and corporate politics. But anyway, that's it for me, guys. I got to eat dinner. I got to go. It was a good show, though. You got a couple stories out of me. Uh, uh, maybe more to come. I'm trying to be more like this, uh, to be honest, in my writing, too. So anyway, with that said, I'm going to peace out. Thanks, everyone, for coming. You can support me at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. The link is in the, the, the profile. So seven more subscribers would definitely be helpful for my sustainability of all the work. Uh, But with that said, hope to see you on the next Cold War Brew. And until next time, be sure to subscribe here uh, to also the show. All right. And until next time, bye-bye.